Once again, we welcome you to Moving Forward with Young Voices. And we're very happy to welcome YZ Huang to the program. Uh, this is your first time on the show, so I want to give you the opportunity to uh, to introduce yourself to our listeners and tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Yeah, uh, thanks for having me on. Uh, I'm YZ Huang. Um, I'm a day job. I work as a software engineer, but uh, I suppose I've been trying my hand at political commentary. Uh, and how, uh, I guess as a... Oh. How's, how's that... Uh, how does that suit you? Is is it uh, something that uh, d- does that uh, bring some passion to what you're doing? Yeah, I think it, it does make my life a little more interesting after a, after a day of coding, and uh, I think I find that you know my day job uh, as a software engineer, I, I sort of connect important things. That's what I do, and uh, I think when I find when I'm writing, I connect. I like to connect two pretty different topics and try to make something new out of that. Well, I'm looking at an article that you have written for freethepeople.org. Uh, the Ottawa protest proves that D.C. shouldn't be a state. And uh, first of all, I got to tell you, we learned a lot. And anybody with eyes watching the, the whole uh, trucker protest and the way the government responded to that in Ottawa has, has had a lot to learn. What are some of the main lessons that you can draw from looking at that protest? And then let's let's apply it to uh, what seems to be kind of a constant uh, minor push to, to make Washington, D.C., a state as opposed to just a federal district. What did, what did we learn from the Canada protest and the way their government responded? Yeah, so Canada has a very unique feature in that it is the only federation where the capital is not its own independent administration. It's part of the province of Ontario. Uh, so it would be like as if um, Washington, D.C. is a state. It'd be, a, you know. Um, what happened during the protest is that the federal government had no policing power over its capital when it was occupied. And that meant the federal government couldn't really function, right? So what did the federal government do? It suspended, had to suspend part of the Constitution in order to um, free itself from these occupiers. And, uh, you know, we have these sort of two bad extremes, right? Uh, one bad extreme, the government can't function. But another bad extreme, the government you know, it takes extra power. Uh, you know, it, it, um, it froze bank accounts without warrants. People couldn't access their money um, with no recourse, right? And to avoid that, the solution is you got to give the federal government strong powers, that explicit powers, that it, it can't over- exceed, but the powers are sufficient enough for it to you know, operate independently. And that's what we have in Washington, D.C., right now i guess i've never really thought of it uh, so closely but i i see your point in that uh, look where, where there's complete federal authority um it's it's not a question of uh, should dc act like a state or um basically the, the the lines are a little bit more clear about the division between federal and state powers um tell me why in in your estimation yz why is it that people are pushing for dc to become a state yeah i think there are a couple of things. There's the sort of cynical reason where D.C. is a very um, democratic state and Democrats want more senators in Congress and, and also a representative wouldn't help, uh, would help. Um, but the other reason is the people of D.C. feel like they deserve a voice in government, which is fair. It's something we've instilled in all Americans, right? They deserve representation. Um, and that's why, actually, in my article, I'm not opposed to representation 
in um, Congress. I'm just opposed to D.C. being a state that is independent from Congress. Um, so tell me, it, what was the what was the missed opportunity in terms of uh, uh, if Canada had adopted you know, the kind of federal district that we have, would they have had their own police force? Would they have had their own ways of dealing with it short of, I see, I look at what they did. I think it's a terrible overreaction. Uh, would it likely have headed off such a, a reaction in the first place if, if they had the means to deal with large numbers of protesters showing up and, and shutting things down? Yeah, I, I believe that if the federal government was able to deploy its own forces in independent administration in, in the Ottawa capital Canada, it, it wouldn't have had to resort to these um, to suspending part of the Constitution, or at least it wouldn't have had the political pretext to do so. Uh, what we found is, one, the Ottawa city government um, was pretty inept. Uh, they just didn't have the equipment to move around these giant semi-trucks. And the second thing is found is, well, Ottawa, or Ontario, is, is run by... Um, the Conservative Party, which is in opposition to the Liberal Party in Parliament. And the Conservative Party, some of them were sympathetic to the protesters. So now there's a conflict of interest, right? Um, Premier Doug Ford uh, technically has an obligation to help clear the protesters, but politically, well, it's a, it gets a little tricky there, right? And and that sort of um, undue influence is something that uh, can, can lead to sort of these messy constitutional crises, so how how strong has the push for D.C. statehood grown in, in, and over what time frame? I mean, you you referenced the wisdom of the founders. Maybe we should back it up. Why did they set it up the way that they did as opposed to simply making it, you know, another uh, another state in the union? Yeah, I think the founders were wise. And if they weren't wise, they're pretty paranoid. Back then, the states were a lot more independent. They definitely saw themselves as, as more uh, I like to say they sound themselves more like kind of like the EU, maybe a little more unified. And so the fear of having one capital beholden to one state was you know, something that would be unacceptable to the other states. Nowadays, that fear sort of subsided, but this principle still remains. We wouldn't want a state, a, a D.C. or Virginia or Maryland, to control our capital, right? And uh, in an age of declining political norms and you know, rising polarization, I think it's more important than ever to maintain a independent Congress, independent federal government, and avoid a lot of these tricky scenarios, right? I mean, what if, um, just you know, spitballing, Congress is passing a bill on some hot topic issue, abortion, gun control, um, LGBTQI rights, you know, and uh, the governor of D.C., let's say D.C. is a state, the governor of D.C. is that this will you know, hurt millions of Americans. I can't let this go through, right? And blockades Congress with with uh, state cops, right? What could they do? Or perhaps uh, some protesters enter Congress, similar to Canada, and the um, governor of D.C. says, well, you know, I'm actually kind of siding with the protesters. I won't do anything, right? These are all pretty bad scenarios, and uh, there's I can't, I can't see a solution to this besides, you know, just... Um, there's one solution. There's one solution yeah. that comes to mind, but I don't know that governments, you know, either in Canada or here, are likely to listen to it, and that is um, to 
to stop leaning so heavily on their citizens. You know, I think it would that would bring a lot of the the protests, you know, make them, you know, a moot point. But, you know, things are as they are. And uh, it it looks like there there's actually an effort afoot to to expand, for instance, the influence of the Capitol Police beyond just, you know, the Washington, D.C. area. I'd love to get your take on this, Um, where where they're opening up satellite offices, I know, on either coast. does does that portend good or bad things for for what's going on there in Washington D.C.? Yeah, I think the as long as this is done in a pretty clear, as long as the federal government stays within very clear bounds, the federal government should have the power to be able to operate um, independently because it's 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 been elected nationally. They they deserve you know the right to independence. Um, I think where it gets tricky is if they outstep their bounds, right? The, the founders allotted, specifically allotted a district um, that the federal government, capital peace, police can operate. And uh, when they start releasing satellite offices, it, you know, it, it's starting to push that, that boundary, right? Um, I think there's a myth that you need, that there's, you know, one dimension of state. The state's either weak, the state's either strong, right? That's not true. I think that's, that's a older view of the state when it was, you know, during medieval times, you know, a king was either weak or strong. But in a modern state, you want a state that's strong in the places it needs to be strong and absolutely powerless is absolutely powerless in the areas that um, it shouldn't have power. In. And that's 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 the um, that's what we should be seeking. Is there a middle ground in here where uh, Washington, D.C. could have legislative representation, for instance, without actually becoming a state? Yeah, I believe so. And if not, um, I think that a directing that energy for statehood towards a, an amendment that allows D.C. to have representation without being a state um, would be a good idea. Uh, I think that would be a good compromise because uh, I think the logical conclusion is that Congress should be able to you know, do whatever it needs to with D.C., which will make a lot of the residents of D.C. pretty angry. I think a good compromise is to... Uh, let them have uh, representation, right? So um, we've got about, uh, well, we've only got about 20 seconds left. I guess I want to ask another question. Let me ask you this. Where can people find you and follow you, either your writings or uh, find you on social media? Yeah, I'm sort of a ghost online. I think if you visit Young Voices, and you'll be able to find my profile and find a lot of very talented writers, honestly more talented than I am. Uh, so... Um, yeah, uh, thank you so much for having me on. Okay, we are, we are visiting with YZ Wong, and uh, great to have you on board the program. I, I hope we get a chance to talk again, and I look forward to seeing more of, uh, of your writings and, and have another chance to visit. Thank you so much. And we welcome you back to Moving Forward with Young Voices. Very happy to welcome Nicholas Adorinto to the show. He is a Young Voices contributor and also editorial assistant at the African Liberty. And uh, Nicholas, I have to say, this is this is the first time that I have interviewed a Young Voices contributor from Africa, and so uh, I feel like I feel like I have expanded my international horizons just a little bit more. Um, tell us about yourself, who you are. Tell us what you do. Okay, thank you uh, very much, Brian. Uh, it's nice to 
to be with you this uh, evening. Sorry, okay. Uh, currently in Nigeria, it's evening, so uh, just bear with me for that. So uh, I'm a writer. Uh, I basically write on ed and education, and I currently work with the African Liberty as an editorial assistant. Uh, African Liberty is a foremost uh, African organization promoting uh, libertarian ideas. So uh, I think I would like to keep it that way. <laughs> I, that's that's wonderful. I'm so happy to hear about uh, people who are using their influence to you know support and promote freedom all over the world. And I'm, I'm looking at an article that you wrote for RealClearEnergy.org, and this is a topic that I think is going to hit home for a lot of people because uh, right now everyone who is fueling up their car has kind of a long face because the costs of energy seem to be going higher and higher. The title of your article yeah. is Building the East Med Pipeline Would Help Free Europe from Russian Energy. Uh, let's talk a little bit about what this pipeline represents and why it would be important to, to help Europe stand independent of, of Russian energy. Where do we begin? Let's start, okay. with, the, let's start with the pipeline. Okay. Uh, so uh, the East Med Pipeline has been... Um, has been in conversation since 2013, and it was born out of uh, a Z to a desire to find an alternative to uh, Europe dependence on uh, Russian energy. Currently, uh, Europe is overly dependent on uh, Russian energy, and uh, I think it begs the question: How the European uh, leaders allow this to to get to this stage before they start looking for an alternative? Uh, if we look at uh, Germany, Germany, which is the largest economic in in Europe currently, is overly dependent on on uh, Russian energy, and currently, uh, where you can eat Putin uh, the most is the Russian energy. But it's a synergistic uh, relationship. Russia is pumping the, the energy, and Europe is bringing in the money. If you stop pumping in the money to Russia, Russia is going to threaten you with cutting off the oil. So it's, it's a bit, it's, it's a dilemma. That's where the, the East Med comes in. East Med was an initiative to bring an alternative means. It was uh, something that... Uh, uh, some European countries saw and say, okay, if we can do this, we are going to cut our dependence on Russian uh, energy uh, as soon as possible. And uh, it was, it's, the pipeline connects from uh, Israel, uh, goes through uh, Greece and uh, Crete. Although there have been some uh, challenges to building of, of the pipeline, uh, in recent time, Turkey has been one of the, one of the opposition to, to, uh, to the pipeline because Turkey believed that they were intentionally left behind in the pipeline. And in January, too, uh, the President Biden uh, uh, government uh, withdrew support for the, for the pipeline. And now, uh, recently, last week, uh, Chevron CEO was saying that the pipeline has to get back to, into conversation because it seems as if it's one of the alternative alternatives that can work currently now because uh, from one indication, the pipeline can be done by 2025. And uh, recently, last week, the European Union you know, came, uh, came out with their plan. They plan cutting the uh, Europe's uh, dependence on Russia energy by two-third by this year and totally by 2030. But as you said, people are bearing the cost now in the immediate. So that's, that's where the East Med pipeline stands. And you mentioned in your article that the U.S. actually uh, declared that it would it would uh, withdraw its um, support 
of the pipeline. Did yeah. I see that correctly? Why why did the U.S. Yeah. say that it was draw it was withdrawing its support of the East Med pipeline? Okay, uh, it was born out of President Biden's uh, initiative for the green economy. So uh, the, 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 the own administration is saying, if you keep going in this direction, we are not going to cut down our carbon emission. So uh, this pipeline is, is not going to be viable. And also looking at the, uh, the Washington has also argued that the pipeline is not economically viable because at the past pipeline stands now, there are no adequate funding for the pipeline yet. So those are the two basic reasons that uh, made Washington withdrew uh, the support for this pipeline. Wow. I, you know, Maybe it's just because I'm a simple person, but I, I just it feels like the the whole energy situation, particularly not just uh, Europe, but even America's dependence and other nations' dependence on Russian oil, this could be so much simpler. But it's very complicated. Uh, where you know domestic production in the USA, where I live, has has been slowed down to a, a trickle. Um, it seems like Europe doesn't have very many alternatives at this point. Um, it seems like yeah. there's a lot of there's a lot of power, political power that originates from you know access to natural gas and oil reserves. Does that sound about right? Yes, you 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 are correct. If you look at uh the position that European is different from the, the position that the United States is in is different from the position that some non uh, EU member states is in like the UK. Europe cannot do what the US has done. They cannot do what Canada has done. They cannot do what UK has done. It's a different uh, situation. So uh, the the old political game is quite complex, and it's looking like the European Union are the one uh, that are going to suffer a big loss because they cannot follow Washington currently. They can't follow Canada, and they cannot follow uh, the UK with banning of the Russian oil. So it looks like. The journey to being free from Russia energy for Europe will be a long journey. It will not be an instant goodbye. Yeah, I mean, this this is bringing the, the old adage about don't put all of your eggs in one basket. You know, if you trip and fall, you're going to break all of them. Put them in different baskets. So having access to different resources or having access to different ways of getting that gas and oil would seem to make sense. But it, it looks yeah. like, like politics is, is getting in the way. Um, how desperate is, is the situation for energy in, in Europe? I mean, it, sound, it sounds to me like they're the ones who are more or less um, with, left with fewer options. Okay. Yeah. Let me just state some facts here. It's, 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 it's a bit a uh, severe uh, situation for Europe because uh, about 40% of uh, Europe's uh, power comes from Russia. Uh, Germany is highly dependent on uh, Russia. The other source of the other major source of energy for Germany is the nuclear power. And in recent time, there have been calls to even eradicate nuclear, uh, nuclear, nuclear power. So it's looking like uh, the the when when forty percent of your energy is coming from a single country. I mean, it's it stands to reason. What were the European leaders uh, looking on for years? For, for Russia to take on of such a level. And when you see, even though for the invasion of uh, of Ukraine, Russia already had a plan to even increase this uh, dependence because of the Nord Stream 2 pipeline that they were already building to further increase their uh, exports to, to Germany. So for for the whole of Europe, the situation is... is, is and also, when you consider that Russia is currently uh, the second largest producer of natural gas and also the third largest producer of 
oil in the world. And when you consider the amount that fossil fuel, fossil fuel contributes about 14% of Russian economy. I mean, in 2021 alone, revenue from energy made up 40% of the federal budget of Kremlin, of Russia. So it's a big one for Russia. Do, do you see this situation improving any time in the near future? Or will, uh, for instance, the conflict in Ukraine and Russia, is that going to have to die down before they can move forward? Or can, can these nations move forward in spite of that conflict? Oh, okay. Well, it's 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 a dilemma. In the immediate, uh, people may have to bear the brunt. You know, when they say when two elephants are fighting, uh, the grass beneath uh, will suffer. <laughs> so that, I think that's what we are. That's what we are currently seeing. That's why prices of gas has has gone up. So, uh, in the immediate, people will have to suffer. But I believe it's a, something that we may have to bear up to put uh, to put to bear a dictator. Okay, we are talking with Nicholas Adarinto. He's a Young Voices contributor and editorial assistant at African Liberty. Thanks for joining us today, Nicholas. And we are back here on Moving Forward with Young Voices. Happy to welcome Adam Shepherdson to the program. He is a Young Voices contributor as well as a student at Brown University in Rhode Island. Adam, welcome to the show. Tell us just a little bit about yourself. Thanks for having me, Brian. Um, so my name is Adam. Um, I'm an undergraduate student, and I study uh, economics and history. So very much in line with uh, policy and the modern political environment, and kind of how we got how we got to where we are, and how um, we can build ways to move forward. Well, I'm, I'm looking at an article you wrote for Roanoke.com, and uh, boy, this is a hot topic, and that is school choice is the solution to Virginia's mask wars. I Look, the, the whole COVID thing over the last couple of years threw a lot of interesting curveballs at us, but I never would have realized or, or would have projected that people would fight so vigorously over something like masks. And nowhere has that been more apparent than in the public schools. Talk to us about where the situation stands and, and why, why is Virginia... One of, uh, why is it kind of ground zero for, for some of these battles? Yeah, absolutely. So Virginia kind of became the locus of most of the national political debates that are occurring right now in America, mostly over schooling, uh, to be honest. Um, no one likes the school system to be something that's politicized. We all want um, schooling to be an investment that serves our individual students, gets them to where they need to go, and helps them develop life skills that will, that will uh, serve their goals and um, kind of help facilitate the system of, of equal opportunity and socioeconomic advancement that we think is so central to America. So since Virginia kind of became this, this purple state that became kind of red and its future is still in flux, um, it really became uh, this, this, as you said, a, a battleground for um, how we hash out the, the really politically charged debates that are dividing Democrats and Republicans. And schooling is one of them. Masks are one of them. Um, a lot of schools are starting to kind of move away from, from mask mandates now. But at the time when I was writing this article, it was very much um, a, a live issue. Um, so I think that uh, with, with Youngkin's executive order banning mask mandates, he was kind of taking a hard stand and um, really kind of solidifying these cultural debates into a political context and a context of law. And when I was approaching this article and wanting to write about it, um, I kind of thought about, you know, there is there can be a divide between how we interact with each other politically and what cultural standards we take and then what we make into law. 
So I thought that Governor Youngkin was very reasonable in his uh, approach to public schools and saying that, yeah, public schools serve everyone and they shouldn't be mandating this kind of strange uh, kind of uh, dress code that we don't know if it really prevents COVID. And, and they're kind of this reasonable debate about the efficacy of mandating masks. However, his order for me went a little bit far and also applying to the private sector. Um, I think that if we want to move away from an environment where Democrats hate Republicans or Republicans hate Democrats and every aspect of our lives is completely political, then we have to kind of um, say that there are some areas where we have to live and let live and we have to allow people to make choices for their own. And I think private schools are one area where um, people are really just choosing how they want to associate with each other. So the government maybe shouldn't really be involved in that process. That's I mean, I think it's kind of safe to say, though, that uh, uh, Youngkin wouldn't even be in office, though, if it weren't for the the subject of school choice. If I'm remembering correctly, uh, then Governor Terry McAuliffe um, kind of stepped on his on his uh, uh, he he tripped over his own feet by saying that, uh, you know, well, parents really shouldn't have a say in this. And boy, it seems like that's when Glenn Youngkin just took off in the polls and ultimately became the governor. Absolutely. McAuliffe just tanked his entire campaign with that. I totally agree. Um, and, and Youngkin was completely right to say that parents matter and that parents should have a choice in saying in uh, determining how their kids are educated and what type of type of education they receive. And that's a totally fair point, And I completely agree. Um, I think that Youngkin kind of steps on that commitment and prevents that commitment from really manifesting in the political sphere when he makes a mandate that affects private schools. So I, I, I love his commitment to increasing the number of charter schools in Virginia. I love his commitment to saying that parents matter and parents should decide the features of their children, how their children are raised and how their children are educated. Some of those parents are Democrats, too. So um, some of those parents might want to put their kids in an environment where people are masks, uh, wear masks and are masked. And you and I and other people might think, why are people treating COVID like it's a bubonic plague? <laughs> why are people so insane about this? But other people don't see things that way. And as long as the people who want to be extremely risk adverse are doing so in an environment where everyone who is, um, I guess, complying with the policies they want they want to enact uh, consented to it, mm -hmm. then I don't see much of a problem in just saying people have a right to be wrong. I'm willing to let people um, do things that I think are irrational as long as it doesn't affect me, you know, live and let live, let people do what they want. No, I think you got a very healthy take there. And and it's that that voluntary nature. Look, if that's what they want, they should be able to do it. But the problem is when we get the state involved and, and the governor's mandate, you know, for public and private schools is a good example. Once the state's involved, now there's there's a, some level, some coercion involved. So that's I, I think you're doing an excellent job of, of sorting out how, look, school choice matters, but school choice can't be a one size fits all proposal itself. Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> Absolutely. Um, and I think that Virginia in particular has a reasonable path forward that doesn't require much change from the current system in order to get to this place where um, people can make choices that fit with their values and fit with their parenting styles. So Virginia already has a limited uh, private voucher system that would allow some parents to uh, send their children to private schools that maybe fit more in line with what they want out of the schooling system. The problem is that not many students take advantage of this program. It's called the Educational Improvement Scholarship Program. Um, only about 0.3% of Virginia students are currently wow. enrolled in this. Yeah. Um, so this, this system, as it currently stands, allows students who apply to a scholarship foundation to receive um, a maximum of funding, of the, the funding that is per pupil funding for their district from the scholarship foundation. 
The problem is that when students actually receive these scholarships, they, the average uh, scholarship they receive is only about 22% of the average expenditure for people in Virginia. So this could show two things. Um, when, when, I, when I look at it, I see one, perhaps the scholarship foundations are underfunded, and that might mean that um, the tax credits that Virginia gives to individuals and, and corporations that donate to these private scholarship funds maybe aren't high enough. Maybe they should be raised so more students have um, access to a larger pool of money to draw from. And secondly, um, there might be a problem where uh, individual Virginia school districts have massive disparities in um, the per people uh, expenditures that are given to their public school system. So this might show um, some kind of troubling implications for equality of opportunity in Virginia. Um, if some school districts have much larger per people spending than others, that might say that Virginia taxpayers aren't really getting a great return on investment um, for the money that they're sending to the state to, uh, to fund their education system. And I think this uh, really speaks to my argument about how change is needed and we can work within the system that's currently, that is currently in place in order to make changes that will help every single parent and every single family in Virginia without respect to things like political affiliation or socioeconomic status. Adam, are other states looking to Virginia to get kind of a feel for where the school choice um, winds are blowing? Um, I would hope so. I think um, there are there are always uh, political figures who have ideas similar to school choice. Whether or not they, they gain much traction is a different matter. Um, I know in, in Virginia, um, the actual libertarian candidate for, for uh, governor, uh, Don Rainwater, had a similar um, idea about tying tax dollars to individual students. And then um, every student would have uh, the, the average per people spending um, in an account tied to them, and they'd be able to use that to pay for any school they would like. So those kind of ideas are out there, um, and they're they're gaining some traction. Um, depending on the political environment of the state in which they're being uh, talked about, uh, how far they'll go is definitely up for debate, and we don't really know. Um, but I'm hoping that more people kind of look at these ideas and think, maybe this is a way to both help people and depoliticize uh, the kind of contentious environment that we find ourselves in. Boy, it's, I think it's a truism. Everything that politics touches tends to become, you know, a, a real power struggle. And, and nowhere mm-hmm. is that more apparent than this. Um, I like, too, that you call for uh, even those in conservative leaning circles who may have some very strong feelings on this should be aware that, you know, like you said earlier about the mask, just because somebody else takes a different approach, as long as neither side is forcing the other to, to do their bidding, let people do what they're going to do. If, if, as long as what they want to do is peaceful, let them do it. Otherwise, you, I think you risk harming your own side by, you know, appearing uh, vindictive. Absolutely. Um, we don't we we I think that the best way to approach these kind of issues is to reiterate that consent is what matters and um, uh, freedom of association and um, the, the ability for people to live life in a way that they think is fulfilling and they think is in line with their values is really the core of the American spirit. And um, we should look at every policy with an eye toward uh, to make to, toward making that goal manifest in reality. Yeah, and and people have got to learn to trust the market. <laughs> I'm going to throw that Absolutely. in there. <laughs> so we have trust issues, and that seems to be one of the places. We're talking with Adam Shepherson. He is a Young Voices contributor. Um, Adam, where can people find your writing? Where can they find you on social media? Um, so my writing kind of appears in in 
and articles all over the place and, and journals all over the place. Um, you can find me on Twitter to find out uh, where those things get published at, uh, at Real Adam Jeff. And I also have a LinkedIn profile. So either or works. Okay. And again, he is a Young Voices contributor, so we'll have a link to Young Voices in the show notes as well. Adam, it was wonderful talking with you. Thanks so much for being my guest. Thank you for having me. And once again, we welcome you to our final segment of Moving Forward with Young Voices today. Very happy to uh, welcome Jane Bambauer. She is a professor of law at University of Arizona, in addition to being a Young Voices contributor. And uh, Jane, it's very good to, to make your acquaintance. Tell us just a little bit about who you are and what you do. Great. Yeah. Nice to be with you, Brian. Uh, so I'm Jane Bambauer. I am a professor of law. My area of specialty, well, my areas include internet law, free speech, privacy, sort of high tech and innovation. And um, lately, uh, among the puzzles that I've been mulling over is um, how to get the most out of the kind of hyper-connected communications environment that we have on social media and just other internet platforms, um, while also reducing certain types of risks and, you know, pathologies, social pathologies that, that come along with that sort of technology. And so that was, you know, at a broad level, that's what I've been thinking about for a few years now. And it sort of culminated in this idea that we're going to talk about today. I'm, I'm looking at an article that you've written for lawfareblog.com, Reckless Associations, a new tort for a new information ecosystem. And I think, you know what, you're right. This is this is very fertile territory and, 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 and it's largely unexplored in terms of, you know, the all of the, the information systems out there. Now, being a layman, I'm going to have to have you explain to me, when we talk about tort, what, what exactly does tort law include? Yeah, okay. So tort law, it's most often thought of as accident law. So if two people are in a car accident and one person sues the other, that's a tort. They, they bring it under, under the doctrines of, of their state tort law. Um, it has usually, or at least um, traditionally, been developed by courts. So it's not like the legislature comes together and figures out exactly what the parameters of these lawsuits would look like. Instead, it's a common law process where courts look at one case at a time and they figure out when liability should be imposed and when it shouldn't. And and um, and 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 actually, I think that it, it, in a in a problem like this where we're still trying to figure out how to handle the risks of a new technology. I think that sort of slow moving process that it's very fact intensive and very case by case based is a good system. Uh, so so while a lot of, you know, as, as we're thinking about how to manage behavior on the Internet, um, the natural instinct is to run to legislation to think about what Congress can do. But there is another alternative, and that's to let judges see one case at a time what seems reasonable in terms of human behavior despite its risks and what seems unreasonable. 
I like that. I mean, I like that a lot more than the one-size-fits-all approach, which um, unfortunately I think would, would squelch a lot of uh, um, innocent speech along with some speech that may actually be reckless and harmful. Let's let's give some examples so that uh, that our listener can understand. When we're talking about uh, the kind of, of reckless speech that, that probably needs to be addressed and, and perhaps, you know, um, curtailed or even punished, what are we talking about? Yeah, so I mean, for the last few years, I have become increasingly concerned about extremism on both both ends of the ideological spectrum. I think the easiest in the sense of best documented examples uh, come from the kind of conspiracy theories that emerge from things like um, Alex Jones's Infowars or um, or QAnon and QAnon's various interpreters. So these are um, these are communications groups where you know that maybe maybe concerns that are discussed among these the individuals who engage in this sort of um, group that maybe they stem from some genuine problem um, in society, but. But there's like an echo chamber where suddenly all of our worst kind of cognitive biases get involved and um, and people are, are sort of encouraging each other to go to more and more extreme beliefs. Uh, and, and, you know, so again, I, it, a lot of the attention, at least in the, the mainstream press, tends to focus on groups like QAnon. Um, something similar, I think, is starting to happen on, on, on the left as well. And, and I have to say, you know, to, to you know, put all my cards on the table, I'm, I'm a kind of moderate Democrat. And so I, I see the signs that something um, something that, you know, something is brewing that looks very familiar on the left side. And so I am concerned right now about, um, you know, possible violence that stems from just inaccurate beliefs that could come on, on both sides of the ideological spectrum. Um, and so when, uh, when, when people think about examples like the January 6th riot, where because of misformed beliefs about um, the integrity of our election system, uh, many people were mobilized to go storm the Capitol. You know that that's a culmination of, of sort of years of incidents that could have been and maybe should have been sort of thoughtfully um, dealt with or handled uh, earlier. Um, and right now, there's there's a real mood to force social media companies themselves to deal handle the problem. But I agree with, with, with something you said, Brian, that when there's a one size fits all bill or, or in any case, a bill that tries to get the intermediary to do everything right, to, you know, find the bad content, whatever that means and, and cull it and then leave the good content up. Uh, we're going to have a lot of distortions. We're going to have, I, I mean, I think the most obvious outcome would be that a social media company put in that position will be overly censorial because um, they will not want to face the legal risk uh, and they don't get much out of hosting, you know, any one particular person's content. So they'd rather just purge content that might eventually um, get them in trouble um, through, you know, federal legislation or some other path. So, So I prefer to focus rather than rather than on the social media companies on the people who are engaging in the 
um, you know, the extremist content and um, extreme associations themselves. And so that's that's what I'm suggesting this tort do is find a path for like if 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 someone is um, if an innocent bystander basically is hurt because of a mob or some kind of, um, you know, frenzied and, you know, frenzied or um, wrongheaded belief that someone has and, and, and and that person commits some kind of act of violence, I would like the person who's harmed to be able to not only sue the person who actually committed the violence, but possibly if the conditions are right, even reach to central node, central figures in their reckless group. Um, to be able to uh, seek compensation. And and the hope, of course, is, you know, the compensation itself is important, but the hope is that that serves as a very specialized kind of deterrence function so that people think twice before um, constantly retweeting a bunch of theories about how, um, you know, all Democrats are pedophiles or how every police officer is um, a fascist, that sort of thing. Right. I I do have concern in that um, there's some subjectivity. You know, as far as, well, is this extremist content? Um, Because there's there's nuance. Um, For instance, I do have some serious questions about the transparency of the elections. I have some questions about the integrity of the election system. But I didn't show up in Washington, D.C., and I certainly wasn't, you know, ready to storm the Capitol. I just feel like there were questions that were left hanging. And, and, uh, you know, to some people that would make me, you know, quite an extremist. I don't think I'm an extremist. At least my actions don't appear extreme. But I definitely think I I want more answers. I don't know where, you, you know, where's King Solomon when yeah. we need him? You know, where do, where do we split the line there between the harmful content and people who may have questions? No matter. I, and I may even be wrong. I'm willing to. I may be totally wrong headed on this. But I still have we those questions. Might, I mean, that's the kind of humility that, that you know, we all need. I, I, so that that you're, you're getting right at the heart of what makes me feel the least, you know, the most uncomfortable about this proposal as well. Uh, I certainly would not want a form of tort liability that is broad enough to make people feel uneasy or uncomfortable asking questions or even floating theories. In fact, what one one thing I want to make really clear is that it's usually not even the person who initially creates content that then goes viral, who is likely to be the kind of central node, the, the type of defendant that I think should be. So so first of all, I I would expect this type of liability to be fairly rare, um, rarer than defamation liability, for example, and defamation is itself somewhat rare. Um, and, And I would expect it to be the sort of person who doesn't just ask questions or even present evidence that there might be, for example, an election integrity problem, but rather keeps the drumbeat going, keeps, uh, you know, basically shows an intent to keep others um, focused, hyper-focused on one one problem or grievance over and over and over again. Um, And so I, I don't think it's worth going into the details of how this tort would work necessarily, but what I'm looking for is patterns of communications where someone is incessantly um, communicating with 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 a network i am so sorry we are up against the clock here because i am loving this conversation and i think we should probably have you back to continue this conversation at some point we're talking with jane bambauer Uh, where can people follow your writings where can they find you on social media well i tweet at at jane yakowitz that was my maiden name (laughs) 
And you can find this piece on Lawfare, as as you mentioned. Thank you so much for being on the show today. Thanks so much.